Hey folks, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. Whether it's your first time or you've been here since the beginning, we are thrilled to be a part of your spiritual walk and look forward to all that Christ is doing in your life. If you are looking for more information about Christ Church or you would like to connect with one of our pastors or ministry leaders, you can reach us on our website, ccgf.org. You can also connect with us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Here is this week's message. Grace and peace to you. On the way in this morning, you, you got one of our new fancy Connect cards. Um, this is a great way to communicate what's happening in the church. And so we, we'd ask you to check this out every week when you get it. It's a great way to know how you can be involved in the life of Christ Church. Um, there's a featured event that I want to point out to you. And it's the Veterans Day service. That's going to happen this coming Wednesday right here in this room at 630 we're really excited about this. We, we had a vision to have a special service for veterans where we could bless them. We're so grateful for the sacrifice made by many so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we do enjoy in America. And so we felt like it was an appropriate thing to gather for that. We, we were going to do it on Veterans Day, but we talked to some of the veterans in the church and they said, you know, actually, it would be better if you did it at a time other than Veterans Day because there's so many things happening in the city and the veterans community where veterans are being celebrated. So Wednesday, we're going to have this here. Now, here's the deal. First time we're doing this, we don't want a half full room. That would not be honoring to the veterans. And so we're asking people, show up for this. It's going to be powerful. Great music. There's going to be a testimony from a World War II veteran here. We're going to have a time of blessing. Please show up for this. And more than that, invite any veterans that you know. They don't have to be a part of this church. Neighbor, someone in in your community, uh, someone in your workplace, whoever it might be, invite them to come out and be a part of this night to be special. So be here yourself. Invite someone to come. We're really excited about that night. And also, as you look at this Connect card, you're going to see that there's a a place for you to check a box and tell us more about yourself and and to get information about the church. There's a place for a prayer request on the back. Maybe God will lay something in your heart this morning. We would love to pray for you. There's even a place for you to write down notes as God speaks to you this morning. Speaking of God speaking to us, let's pray over that as we go to the message now. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together to worship you through song, through the sacrament, in just a little bit here, through prayers and through your word and through fellowship, God. In all these ways, we feel your presence. We need your touch, God. And we pray, God, that as we do look ahead to Wednesday and we consider the sacrifice, those who laid it all on the line for freedom, that, Lord, we'd be inspired to consider he who laid it all on the line beyond any other, Jesus Christ, and who gives, who gives us the ultimate freedom and that we would live lives worthy of him. So I pray this morning, God, as we look at your word, that that truth would be clear and present for all of us. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have through Jesus. We pray, God, you give us focus and clarity as we look at your word. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I, I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but people get nervous whenever preachers talk about money. Isn't that a funny thing, huh? Some of you are nervous right now, in fact. The series is called Generous. You're like, oh, I know where he's going with this. We're going to talk about money. I just know it. Yeah, and people do get nervous about that. It's interesting. I started at Christ Church almost two years to the day. And, and I started um, not expecting that my first sermon would be on giving. John Guest pulls me aside and says, hey, I want you to preach this Sunday. The text is on giving. And I said, what? 
John, they're going to think I'm a prosperity gospel preacher. I don't want to start this way. But sure enough, I, that's how I started here at Christ Church, and you still kept me around for at least two years. Listen, money is absolutely a prominent subject in the Bible. And, and it's a prominent subject for the church. I, I did a little history rundown here in my notes, and I want to read it to you to give you a sense of just the prominence of, of money and, and the part that it plays in the Bible. For instance, in the Old Testament, money is, is viewed generally positively. You have Abraham, for instance, who was described as wealthy. There's King Solomon, who had unparalleled riches. There's even scriptures like Proverbs 10.22. That's one you can write down in your notes. That says this, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth. The Old Testament speaks to money, and it's generally, again, positive. But there's also warnings. There's warnings such as, don't forget the source of wealth. That's one we could take heed of today. There's a reminder, a warning to care for the needy in the Old Testament. We see that also. As you flip the pages in the Bible to the New Testament, the emphasis, of course, is on Jesus. The emphasis in the New Testament is on the kingdom of God. And in Jesus' teachings, we see this, that it's one thing to be material, materially rich, but it's a whole other thing to be rich with God. Jesus called people to be rich with God. Jesus, in fact, warned that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve mammon or money and God. Well, the early church picked up on this. The early church took the scriptures. And, and the early church was generally poor. If you look at history, we know that, that those who were part of that church in the book of Acts and in the years after that, poor people. The church was impoverished. However, they taught even an indifference to the things of the world. Not only were they poor, they said, you know what? The, the things of, of this world are not important to us. They didn't see the Bible necessarily as opposed to wealth, but they ultimately developed what could be looked at as a glorification of poverty. That was a mark of the early church. Well, if you fast forward in church history to the reformers, the reformers came along and, and they didn't deny the biblical warnings about wealth. However, the reformers also didn't recommend a life of poverty either. Somewhere in between this wrestling match. And as time has marched on, I think we see that reflected in church history, that there's this wrestling match with, with wealth and with money. You see it in the Anabaptists, you see it in the Puritans. There were church groups who have literally renounced private property and said that if you follow Christ, you shouldn't own private property. How about that? And, and then, on the other hand, there, there are others who have produced wealth because they've embraced the scriptures. They've embraced the idea of a, of a work ethic that actually produces wealth. And so you wonder, like, where, where, where's the answer today? In the Protestant world, here in, in America, Protestantism has become synonymous with middle-class respectability. That is, modern Christians are kind of bougie, aren't we? And so you have this, like, interesting mosaic of how the church, even how the Bible, presents the issue of money to us. And, and, and here's the big question, I think, that emerges from it is what are we to do about this? What are we to think about all of this? What are we to make 
of, of the issue of money, and it's an important one, I can tell you this. All of life is to fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ. All of life. All of life is to fall under the leadership of Jesus Christ. The question becomes, well, how do I live that out? What does it look like to have all of life, including my money, fall under the, leader, the lordship of Jesus Christ? Well, it's a good question, and I'm glad you asked. And I believe that today's text addresses that for us in a really powerful way. So let's go there right now. We're in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's consider money. What is the answer? How does one live a life under the lordship of Jesus Christ? I think this passage addresses money really well for us. Gideon's already read a part of this. Let's go back, though, and read, actually, uh, verse 6. Let's start there. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. We encourage you to have a Bible in front of you, whether that's a hard copy or a digital copy. Or if you're reading along the screens, get the word in your, in your face and take some notes and let the Lord speak to you. So here we go. I'm going to read to you a, a chunk of scripture here. Consider what this has to say about all of life being under the lordship of Jesus. The apostle Paul, the author of this letter, says this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have de decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, this is a quote from the book of Psalms, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You can be generous on every occasion and through us, generosity will result and thanksgiving to God. Let's stop there and talk about this. Now, one of the things that jumped out to me, which might be familiar to some of you, is this, this idea that God loves a cheerful giver. Did that stand out to you? I have a friend who told me this week that he's got a, a buddy who has a vanity plate on his car. And the vanity plate is 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which is this cheerful giver thing. The guy's a fundraiser. Isn't that great? What a great license plate for a fundraiser. God loves a cheerful giver. That's kind of a hard one to wrap your head around sometimes because if you're like me, and I suspect they're all kind of alike in this, sometimes the act of giving, whether it's to the church or to some other kind of charity or to a neighbor, whatever it might be, it can feel kind of like just do it, right? Just do it. Kind of grin and bear it. Make the discipline happen. Just do it. Well, this scripture tells us that that's not the way we should approach it. That, that God actually prefers. His desire is that we would be cheerful givers. Now, how does that happen? I'll tell you what happens. It's right here in the scriptures. It comes from the heart. You see, the way that we become cheerful givers is not just putting some fake smile on our, on our face whenever we give out that check. No, the way that it happens is it's connected to our faith and trust in God. That, that's the way that we can accomplish the aim of being cheerful givers when actually giving 
is inextricably connected to our faith and our trust in God. There's one command. If you, if you take what we just read, there's one command in this scripture. Read it for yourself. There's a bunch of encouragement, but there's one command, and the command is this, that we give cheerfully from the heart. That's the command, that we would give cheerfully from the heart. You might call that grace giving. God gives to us so that we will give and we'll give cheerfully. That, that's, the, that's the formula. That's the, 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 the paradigm that's introduced here. We can be cheerful because of the promises of God. We're going to talk about those promises. This is all about, by the way, this is all about giving to others. You might call it radical generosity. We just finished up a series called Ordinary Radicals. Well, I think a subset of what makes an ordinary radical radical is radical generosity. Radical generosity is how we live out, I believe. And that's what this passage is pointing to. This idea of putting everything, including our money, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's about radical generosity. Let me tell you about someone I know who I think is radically generous. So uh, there's a pastor friend that uh, I've developed in the past couple of years that I've gotten to know. And, and this pastor friend of mine is radically generous, more than I think anyone that I know. And, and he's, he was really intentional when I first got here about connecting with me. And uh, he would send me encouraging notes, give a phone call to me, ch check in and see how I'm doing. He took me to lunch. He took me to a nice lunch, and we sat down, and we had a meal together. And during that meal, by the way, it was so cool. This guy, who's been in ministry for about 30 years, just spoke vision over the city and over new leadership. It's emerging in the city. And he was, he was so um, grateful to God about what is happening in Pittsburgh and what's going to happen. And, and I was just so encouraged by it. And when we got to the end of the meal and got time to, to get up and, and take off, he said, hey, one more thing before you leave. I want you to take home dessert for your family, your, your daughters, your wife. I want you to take home dessert for them. I was like, oh, okay, that's unusual, but yeah, sure. And so he called the waiter over and he said, hey, waiter, I want you to give this guy a piece of the 12-layer chocolate cake and give him a piece of carrot cake and give him the chocolate mousse, really, and, and give him the lemon meringue pie. And, and give him a slice of the apple pie, and also throw in an order of those beignets. They probably thought, this dude is a total porker. What is he doing with all this dessert? And I had bags, two full bags, my wife can attest to this, that I brought home from this meal. Incredible, who does that? Incredible generosity. He just wanted to bless my family, which I really appreciated. But it gets better, because it's not just dessert. This, this pastor has what I would suggest might be the most generous church in all of Pittsburgh. They're generous with their facility. They're, they're generous with their, their time. They're generous with their resources. They're generous in every single way. Radical generosity. This is what we're called to, this kind of expression, this kind of generous spirit. And we see it reflected here in the text. And I want you to notice something. There is, there is a, never going to be a time when you're called to give in a way that you cannot. Did you catch this? I mean, look, the scripture says that, that God is able to bless you so that in all things, not some things, in all things, at all times, not sometimes, having all that you need, you will abound. You will be able to be generous in spirit. That's the kind of generosity that we are called to as a people. He will give you, in fact, more seed, the scripture says. 
Not only does he give to us so we can give cheerfully, the scripture says, and it uses the farming analogy, when you look here in, in, in verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower will also supply and increase your store of seed. In other words, God will give you more, not so that you can get rich, but so that you can be more generous. God will give you a bonus, in other words. God will, will put some extra cash in your pocket. He'll give you more of, of whatever it might be. Why? Not so you can keep it to yourself, but so that you can bless others abundantly. That's the kind of God we serve, and he calls us to be radically generous. And listen, we see this also. Your free giving, your radical generosity has not just temporary consequences, it has forever consequences. It has eternal consequences because here's what we're doing. We are, we are supplying, uh, I'm sorry, we are um, being generous in every occasion and that generosity results in thanksgiving to God. It's a harvest of righteousness that awaits us. This is the proverbial treasure in heaven that God tells us about in his word. There's treasures in heaven and so we can be truly happy we could be truly joyful. We could be cheerful givers because we know that there's an eternal investment that our giving has. We are called to be radically generous givers because God has given so much to us. It's incredible. And there's an impact that the scripture shows to us. Look again at verse 11. I'm gonna read the second half of 11. And look at verse 12. After Paul has talked about this idea of being a cheerful giver, he says, through us, in other words, through the people who are recipients, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. So, so here's the deal. The context of this passage historically is that Paul is raising money for famine relief in Israel. There's a famine there for the poor Jews. They're raising money. And he says that the impact is going to be twofold. That in one hand, people are going to be physically fed, supplying the needs. That's that part, okay? But it's not just supplying the needs. There's a second part of it. It's going to lead people to worship God. Their generosity, their radical generosity is going to lead to people praising God. And this makes sense. This twofold approach. Because you and I are both body and spirit. We're not only body, we're not only spirit. We are body and spirit. It's how God has created us. And so body-wise, there's, there's many ways to help historically. Christians have built hospitals. Historically, Christians have fed the hungry. That's been a part of the work of the church in body. Here at Christ Church, we partner with Urban Impact. We partner with a servo. We partner with choices. We partner with seed. We, we partner with all sorts of ministries. Adventures in training with a purpose with our friend John Kolb. We do these things because we want to impact bodily needs, physical needs. We want to supply those. There's a model for that. But that's not all the Christian does. The church also touches the spirit through the gospel. Christianity offers a power not only for the present, but also the future. That's what Paul's pointing to here when he says you're not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's overflowing and many expressions of worship, of thanks to God. The gospel provides a deep purpose 
Whenever we're generous, it's not only supplying a need, it's touching the spirit and giving people a sense of purpose and showing them God's heart for who they are in God's sight. The church addresses body and soul, body and spirit. The power of God changes people holistically, completely. Government doesn't do that. Education won't do that. When the church becomes what it ought to be, in terms of generosity, there's this magnetism. There's this attractiveness about the people of God and their lives. That is what Paul is showing us here in 2 Corinthians 9. Hey, that's how the church grew historically. The church grew historically in light of this radical generosity. It was like the kindling of the spirit of God it was using, it was addressing both body and spirit. I wanna show you a really interesting uh, writing or document from, from Christian history. This is an ancient document. It, it stretches back to about 100 years after the death of Jesus. And it's, it's an a, um, a, uh, example of a Christian apologetic. It, it's defending Christianity to the critics, so to speak. And this document is called The Epistle to Diagnosis. I'm going to show you just a little bit of it here. It's about 12 chapters in length. You can go online and find it for yourself and read about it. And it's defending against Christianity to critics. And the writer is explaining Christianity to a person named Diagnosis, okay? And, and if you look at the chapters, it kind of goes over the spiritual part. It addresses spirit. It talks about who Jesus is. It talks about our personal need for a Savior because of sin. It talks about the blessings that come through faith. And then there's this little section that talks about the lifestyle of a Christian. This is what I want to read to you. We're talking about how the church addresses body and spirit, radical generosity. Check this out, okay? Let me read this to you. It says, For the Christians are distinguished from one another, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. In other words, we don't know where these people come from. We don't know why they're like this. There's no, there's no physical or human explanation for why they act in the way that I'm going to describe to you. And then he goes on to describe some of their behaviors. Okay, here's a couple of them. He says, every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Listen, this is a description. And it's not just money, by the way. This is a description of what the radically generous spirit looks like in the life of someone who follows Jesus. I want to point out just a couple things to you quickly about it, okay? Did you catch that part about every foreign land of them is like their native country, every land of their birth as a land of strangers? There was an absence of racism. A part of the generous spirit of the early church, there was an absence of racism among their people. 
They were people who, who had a higher authority than country. They were people who had a higher loyalty, higher loyalty than, than their race. That's reflected in who they were. Not only that, they had a high view of life. They didn't kill unwanted children. That's what the culture did. The, the baby girls in those times by the pagans were thrown into the river. That's how they would treat babies. Well, the Christians came along and they had a high view of life. They, did, they saw that, that every life, no matter how unwanted, was precious. Which, by the way, as I always want to point out to us, this is why it's so important for us to partner with choices, to advocate for life, because we, like the early church, see that every life is precious. Through your giving to the church, this church has given thousands upon thousands of dollars to choices over the years. That's how we steward our money. That's how we give. That's the kind of radical generosity. They had a high view of life. Knowing that, they had an unusual view of sex. Did you pick up on this? It said that, that they have a common table, but not a common bed. You get what I mean here, okay? In other words, you can come and have supper with them at their table. The table's open, but you can't sleep with them. That's all they do. And that's different than the people of the day. The pagan ethic was this. They saw sexuality as just an appetite. It's like someone having a bunch of those desserts in front of them and just saying, I'm going to eat whatever I want. I'm hungry. And they viewed sexuality in that same way. But the Christians didn't. The Christians said, no, we're going to commit to a spouse, one person. And we're going to say, I belong exclusively to you. Generous in spirit. Generous to people in terms of sharing their food and their possessions but generous to, to one person they made a commitment in and that they wouldn't share themselves with everyone else. And yes, they were also, as you saw, reflected in that little section I read to you, they were radically generous. Did you catch it? They were poor, but they made people rich. There was a generosity that was noted about the early church. And let me tell you, how did Christianity spread? It has to do something with this. No one could surpass the beauty of the lives of the Christians. These people who valued the babies. These people who, who, who looked at sexuality differently. These people who weren't racist. These people who were generous even with their money. The people of the culture thought, what has happened inside of them that they act this way? Why are they so different? Well, let's put it on us. How do people think of us? How do people think of you? Do they think of you, do they think of us as they thought about the early church, as generous, not just with money, but in every way. That there was a generosity of spirit. Are we known for generosity? I'm telling you people, we have to be known for that because God will use that spirit of generosity, which is from God, to bless others and draw them to who he is. I wanna point you to the last little part of this, this section of scripture. Let's go there right now. Picking up in verse 13. Paul continues in light of talking about this generosity and the, the, the impact it's having. He says, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. I want to point you to verse 13. There's, there's a couple little phrases here that I think are really powerful. One is this. Did you catch it? It says that, that God will, others will praise God 
for the obedience that accompanies your confession. The obedience, in other words, that matches your confession of the gospel. In other words, you say that you believe in Jesus, you say that you love God, and your life, the obedience that you have actually matches that. It actually reflects that. They're one and the same. You're not a hypocrite. And that's because the early Christians, the people that he's writing to, they said this, it all belongs to God anyways. Everything I own, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. They are people whose lives were touched by the gospel, the gospel that Jesus Christ is God's son. Then he died for sinners. They knew they were sinners. You know you're a they, they, they knew they were a sinner. You know you're a sinner. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, came back to life, they had found new life through him. They believed the gospel. They knew that they were sinners who had been saved by grace. Listen, radical generosity is a response to that gospel. It's nothing more. And the way that you know the, the scripture points to it. The way that you know that you have been touched by the grace of God is that you give radical generosity. I love verse 13 again, which says this. It says that you have proved yourselves. You proved yourselves. How? By obedience. By obedience to that which you confess. You have proved yourselves. In other words, your example. You're not just all talk. You've proved it with your life. You've been a generous person. You talk about a generous God, well, you're a generous person. It's a person who is a Christian who says, I owe you everything, God. Everything I have is yours. And the attitude is, all of my possessions, my thinking about all my possessions has changed because of Jesus. This is different than the moralist. The moralist says, well, God owes me. I've been pretty good. I've been a good person. No, this person says, I owe everything to God because he's given me everything and everything I has is him. You prove yourself. You prove your confession through your generosity, through your radical generosity. I'll tell you a person who did that really well, Denny Patton. You know, I mentioned earlier, and some of you know Denny. If you don't, I'll tell you a little bit about him. Denny, 50 years ago, was one of the most effective young life leaders in the city of Pittsburgh. He went to Churchill High School and he served in Penn Hills. I mean, this guy was, was incredible. And John Guest, our John Guest, recruited him about 45 years ago to go and serve as the youth minister at St. Stephen's in Sewickley. And from there, I mean, it took off. It was an incredible youth minister. There's legendary stories about what took place in those times. And, and from there, Denny developed something called the silver ring thing. This was edgy in its days. This was cutting edge. And what he was doing was he was teaching sexual abstinence based on God's word to teenagers. More than that, he was sharing the gospel with people all across the nation, even into Europe. In recent years, Denny started something called the Family Wins. And family wins is this, this idea, a systematic approach to reading the scriptures as a family, 15 minutes a day. It's powerful. You should Google it. You should get one of those Bibles. And, and Denny gave himself right to the very end. Denny had a, a cancer 
death sentence hanging over his head for months, for years. And he gave himself. I can attest to the fact that I would see his car parked at the John Guest Ministry Center right behind us here. And he would be there working even when he was at his sickest. In fact, just a few months back, he preached here. And he could barely stand up. He was so nauseous from his sickness. But he got out here and preached the gospel. You see, Denny developed an obedience. An obedience that, that accompanied his confession of faith. He lived it out to the hilt. He was a sinner saved by grace. He knew it. He was called to follow Jesus and share Jesus with everyone, and he did that. Denny prayed himself through, and he proved himself through his radical generosity in life. I love that example he gave us. And that's what we see here in the scriptures. Let me ask you a question. How about you? How about me? How about us? There's a pragmatic way to, to understand if you are a sinner saved by grace. We see it reflected here in the text when it talks about proving yourself. When it talks about obedience that matches your confession, there's this pragmatic kind of thing that's baked into the text, and it's this. If you think that radical generosity is unreasonable, then the grace of God hasn't touched your life. I mean, if you, if you hear us talk about people who are poor and they make others rich, if you hear about people who could see beyond racist thinking, if you see people who, who thought of sexuality differently and thought about money differently, you think, well, this is unreasonable. This doesn't make any sense. Well, that could point to the fact that perhaps you don't know the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Now, some of you think, well, it is reasonable. I think it is reasonable, this, this, this idea of radical generosity, but I'm not there yet. I'm still struggling, to, and I don't know how I'm going to get there. Well, that's different. That's different than thinking it's totally unreasonable. Some of you are learning. Some of you are growing in that understanding. There's grace for that. There's patience for that. I would encourage you to be generous to the point where it's scary. And whatever scary means to you, that could be your step. But let's go back to this. Do you find radical generosity making sense? If not, then let's wrestle with the fact that perhaps the grace of God has not touched your life. And I'm not saying that to you in a way that's looking down on you. I'm saying that to you with compassion. Listen, if you're wrestling with that question and you're sitting here, and I know this, some of you are sitting here, and, and that's a, a big question for you. You don't know where you stand with Jesus. I want you to know something. Jesus is glad you're here. Jesus is glad you're online with us. I'm glad you're here. Christ Church is glad that you're here. And we want you to wrestle with this question because, listen, if that idea of radical generosity doesn't make sense, your relationship with God needs to be made straight. And there's a way that that could take place. It's that gospel. It's the idea that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for sinners, and you're a sinner. And that Jesus rose from the dead, victory over sin and death and the enemy. And you too can have that victory in your life and that peace in your life. You can experience the radical generosity of God. And then, listen, once you do, you'll have no problem with the idea of radical generosity. It'll be a natural outflowing of your life. And yes, it might be gradual in how you learn to get scary 
and your generosity, but it'll be natural. You won't have to be commanded to be generous. It'll be something that comes out of your life when you experience the grace of God. Here's how Paul sums it up. Go to the very last verse of chapter 9, 2 Corinthians. He says this, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The indescribable gift he's talking about is Jesus. The grace of God, the forgiveness for sinners. And what he's saying is this, the reason that my heart can be cheerful when I give, even when it's scary, even when it's, when it's more than I have, the reason I could do that is because God has given me an indescribable gift. He has been radically generous to me. My friends, that radical generosity has to touch our hearts. I pray it'll touch your heart today, whether it's for the first time or if it's the thousandth time. And it'll grow us as a people in being radically generous in our community. And here's what I believe, like the early church, that that radical generosity will touch the world in such a way that it shows them the incredible love, the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. It's a world desperately needs it. Let's be that people. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this. Oh God, as we consider the scriptures, we thank you, yes, for that indescribable gift, the indescribable gift of Jesus. You've been radically generous to us, God, through him. Who, though he knew no sin, became sin so that we might have life and life to the full. I pray, God, that this indescribable gift of Jesus, the gospel, would touch our lives in such a way that each of us grows in our capacity to be radically generous in every way, God, not only with our money, but generous in spirit. Oh God, if there's someone here today who is hearing this message and they're like, man, I don't know what to think of this radical generosity. I'm not sure it's touched my life. It seems unreasonable to me. I pray, God, that they would have the faith to say to you, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's your son, God. I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. And I need this indescribable gift in my life. God, I need your generosity. Help me to live for you. Help me, God, to also be generous in every way of my life. Oh God, I pray that you would use us collectively those who are just getting to know the indescribable gift, those who have known that gift for many, many years, use us collectively, Lord, to advance your kingdom, to show people Jesus, to let them know just how generous you have been to us through your son. Help us, God. Teach us your ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.